the pursuit of good and evil are now linked in astronomy as in almost all science. The fate of the human civilization will depend on whether the rockets of the future carry the astronomer's telescope or the hydrogen bomb. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do, 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 do. <laughs> How are you, Matthew? I'm okay, thank you, Jamie. Was that your impression of Sir Bernard Lovell? Well, I, thought, I think that's exactly how he spoke. <laughs> do you know what? I'm, I'm going to have to go on YouTube and see if there's any good clips of Bernard Lovell speaking. There you go. I, th- I think you'll find I nailed it. Do you know what? It's his birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, Sir Alfred Charles Bernard Lovell. Amazing. Wherever you are in the universe. Brilliant stuff. He uh, passed away in 2012 and born in 1913 on this very day. And if you don't know who Bernard Lovell was, he wasn't Jim Lovell's brother or anything like that. No. Uh, no. But you know what? I was thinking about Jim Lovell. Is Jim Lovell currently the most bang-out living astronaut? Might actually be. Right? Might, well, I think he might be. But anyway, this is Bernard Lovell, Sir Alfred Charles Bernard Lovell, who is an English physicist and radio astronomer. And uh, he got a knighthood for his development of radio astronomy. Oof. And you know That'll what? Do it. What he's really famous for is the Lovell Telescope, the Lovell Thing, uh, yeah, the Lovell Telescope. Basically, oh, did you just say the Lovell Thing? The Lovell Thing. <laughs> He'd love that. It would. He'd have loved yeah. that. that. That thing <laughs> up at Jodrell Bank. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's one a story that I absolutely love about Bernard Lovell, which I never knew about, but we'll get on to that. He studied physics at the University of Bristol. Yeah. Uh, and and got his uh, Bachelor of Science and then his PhD in 1936. Nice. But he's also a church organist. No way. Bit of the pipes. Do you know what? Church organs are immense, aren't they? Like, actually, They're pretty amazing. If you ever get the chance, sit behind a church organ and play it because it's absolutely genius. I might give that a go. Find find a church and, and, um, and, and do a bit of Bach staccato. It's absolutely incredible. Can I play... Is it acceptable to play some Ozzy Osbourne? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Or... Actually, do you remember that in The Simpsons when Bart played the organ and he went all kind of like metal? No. And they all, all <laughs> and they all held up their candles. It's brilliant. Wasn't that season 23, episode 7? God, if you got that right. Can you imagine? Me. <laughs> <That's> like... <laughs> but, so he worked... In the Cosmic Ray Research Team at the University of Manchester. Yeah. Yeah. And then, at the outbreak of the Second World War, he started developing radar systems that were installed on aircraft. And I believe he actually was involved in the very, very first radar system that was installed on an aircraft, which meant... I was going to say, this all sounds so cutting edge, but this was a long time ago. A long time ago. and Well, it was cutting edge. Uh, yeah. So then, when once war had finished, he returned to Manchester with his new radar that he uh, took from the military. He sort of took it home and he tried to study cosmic rays, but he realised that the trams going up and down Oxford Road in Manchester, a road I, ver- I know very well, were interfering. So he basically couldn't do any of the uh, work that he wanted to. So, oh. yeah, so he found out that the university had a botany department... Uh, near in Goostry in Cheshire, and yeah. uh, and set up his uh, experiments there. And uh, the very first thing he did was uh, show that you could look at daytime meteor showers uh, using it. <laughs> wow. Uh, and then, yes, yeah, so he then built the Lovell Telescope at the Jodrell Bank Observatory. And it's still, of course, an absolutely iconic telescope, 50 years on. And remember we were talking about Earth rotation angle when we were talking about sidereal time. I remember. Sidereal time. Merlin is this uh, European VLBI network of interferometric array of radio telescopes, including the Lovell Telescope. I love that it's still used and 
today. Yeah, That's amazing. Absolutely. And of course, it's the backdrop of the Blue Dot Festival and all those kind of things. Um, of course. But here's my favourite story about him. So in 2009, at the Deep Space Communications Centre, he recalled a story about how the Russians tried to assassinate him. Oh. Of course, the Lovell Telescope was used to track Sputnik, and he went over to Russia to sort of visit their facilities. And uh, he, he was left in a room. He said it was really odd. He was sort of left in a room on his own. And this he only published this story after his death. So this was in his diaries. Right. And uh, he was left in a room, and he thinks he was poisoned with radioactivity to try and wipe his brain of any information oh that he'd found. Oh, my what? God. <laughs> uh, on his trip to Yevpatoria. It's not like the Russians, is it? No, not like the Russians to try and kill a British citizen with with radiation. <laughs> so, oh, dear so, me. So, but yeah, but he was actually in Russia at the time in Crimea. They failed to wipe his memory, but he'd written it all down in his diary anyway. Um, but his wife said she scarcely recognised him as the person she had seen in England a week earlier. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Um and basically, yeah, he, he, he said, in, in the midst of happiness which surrounded me, it was as though all life had suddenly turned to dust and ashes. That's how he felt Christ. for weeks and weeks and weeks. Until I was going to say, did he get better? He did. Apparently, he suddenly started feeling better after a holiday to Ireland. Um, oh, well, that'll do it for you. It's the Guinness, Matt. I keep telling you. Yeah, the Guinness. So basically, Guinness is a cure for um, radiation poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like we say down in County Cork, it's mother's milk. <laughs> so not only did they try and kill him with radiation, they also, um, well, wipe his mind with radiation. Um, they asked him Damn. to defect as well. They said, would be very glad if you stay in Russia and we build a telescope for you. And he replied... Mm. Thank you, Mr. President, but I am an Englishman and wish to return to England. <laughs> God save us! <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Yeah, so uh, that's brilliant, though. What a, what an absolute! I mean, I loved him before, but now I really love him. Yeah, no, oh, he's absolutely genius, and uh, he gave the wreath lectures and Macmillan Memorial lectures. So he's Matt. Let's put a photo of him up on our social media big I time think, in 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 honor absolutely space legend of the week bernard lovell well matt mm-hmm. it's on to our favorite feature yes I'd, i said this last week but people are going absolutely <laughs> batshit crazy for this <laughs> so let's do it matt it's time for space word of, of the week. week matt can you explain to me block block yeah, do you know what? It took me ages, really, to understand when people call things the block, like Falcon 9, Block 5. And it was only when I explained it to you that you finally got it, Yeah, no, wasn't it? No, absolutely. So, so, so I have a go at trying to tell the listeners how you explained I'll it to me? You if stop you go, me if I'll I, stop you if you stop go wrong, so have a go. So, yeah, the, the term block comes from the US Air Force, as it, and and it really is the word data block. So they, I think they painted this data block, uh, usually underneath the cockpit, uh, to, to to as a, so you could tell what the aircraft was. But the block number is kind of the version. So it is a version thing. So you can understand that kind of why these rockets have the the the, the name block afterwards. Yes. Yeah, so it's not the fact that there's a an extra bit to the rocket that's a new block. It's just the numbering no. system is a block of letters, a data block. That's absolutely right. Thank you. You nailed it, Matt. Thanks. So, for example, the Boeing B-17F was the 17th bomber that Boeing had, and F, obviously, was the fifth major variation of it. And I think this was the first Boeing aircraft to carry this block number system because there were so many aircraft being ordered at the time, just like, you know, during during the war and just after the war that, you know, that, that, that they were having to go through these things. And they didn't want to change the model number if they were just doing, you know, some minor variations. So mm. block numbers were multiples of five. 
beginning with five. So it would be O five would be your first variant. But initially they incremented in one, two, three, four, but they realized that you could do amendments in the field so that mm-hmm. um so that if you did this amendment in the field you could you could just up up it up a notch. Uh, so, for example, the F100D85, if you amended it in the field, could become the F100D86. But normally, yes, yeah, so 05. So the B17F05 uh, would be the initial block, and B17F10 would be the next minor va- variation, and so on. So 15. Matt, we're 20. all learning today. Yeah. We're all learning. I mean, apart from me, but we're all learning. Mm hmm. And and in that block as well, you would sometimes have the manufacturer and plant where it was built. So, for example, the F15E50, that would be the, um, what would that be? The fifth variation of the F15E. MC, MC standing for McDonnell Douglas, St. Louis, Missouri plant. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, thanks. Uh, So, yeah. So when it comes to spacecraft and rockets, block refers to a change to successive variants within the same design configuration. So Apollo Block 1 was capable of Earth orbit flights, but no docking capability. So Apollo Block 2 was capable of the full full moon mission. Is that right, Jamie? That's correct, yep. So tell me about... Smashing this, Matt, so far. Thanks, thanks. So tell me about Falcon 9. What What was the Block 1... Because it wasn't called Falcon 9 Block 1, was it? No, it was called Version 1.0, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's just called the Falcon 9 when it was Version 1. I don't know. Well, I, I, no, it wasn't. It was just Version 1. Okay. And what about Block 2? Um, block 2 was Version 1.1. So it's 60% heavier with 60% more thrust. There we go. That's Version 1.1. Block 3, mm-hmm. full thrust. Oh, before you've got... Do you know what? Block 2... The thing that I love about Block 2 is the yeah. OctaWeb engine configuration. So on, on version 1, they didn't have that beautiful circle of engines with the one in the middle. They had it in kind of, it looked like a, a 9 on a dice. Isn't OctaWeb a Avengers character? Uh, is it? No. No. No, it sounds like it. Though, it sounds it, like a Roland synth. Have you tried the new Roland Octoware? Try the new... Listen to the tonal shaping of the new Octoware. You love that, Matt, when I say that, I do, I love... Tickles you, tickles you every time. Jamie Buzzword bingo. It is. Um, So, Matt, block three, Mm -hmm. uh, full thrust. Cryogenics give the booster 17% more thrust. Um, And then you've got block four. Well, you can't go block three without saying that it was the first of the Falcon 9s to successfully land and refly. I wanted you to be picked up on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, a plus. A little bit slow. Um, block 4, uh, lots of incremental stuff, Matt. And that was the first one that was called Block 4, right? So it was actually called that was block four. Falcon 9 Block 4. And then on. And then Block 5. So that's Block 5, uprated thrust and improved legs. Final version. Oh, I wish I could get some improved legs, Matt, <laughs> after, my, after the long run I did. Are you on, uh, which, which block number are you? Jamie Franklin, block what? It's Jamie Franklin, block seven. <laughs> you block yeah. seven. You've had, you, you're old hardware, I've had man. a few upgrades, yeah. <laughs> I'm like Nexus 6, but one better. Nice. If you were a plane, you would be, you would be Jamie Franklin dash 35. Exactly. Boom. So I roll. <laughs> so what's been what's happening in the news, Jamie? Well, Matt, the first ASCAN to quit before spaceflight for the first time in fifty years. ASCAN, I love that phrase. <laughs> it's cool, isn't it? Yeah, ASCAN, astronaut candidate. Yes, Rob Culin or Rob Cullin. Rob Culin. I'm going to go with Culin. It's Cullin. Cullin. Rob Cullin, thirty-five, is the first person to to not complete his spaceflight training in 50 years. Isn't that, hmm. isn't that incredible? That, the, Do we know what happened? No, I don't think there is a, an official reason yet. He said for personal reasons, but we don't know what those are. But yeah. I actually think, if you think of the sacrifice that you have to make for space training, 
And someone put it very eloquently uh, in some of the comments I've been seeing online. It says, you spend 10 years in NASA, you have multiple degrees, you have passed all the physical and technical tests, you go out and do the demos and put on the smile for the cameras, then when you finally fly, you spend a couple of days in space and you're done. (laughs) Yeah, and you think yeah. like, and, and presumably, yeah, you have to miss your family. There's a high divorce rate. The salary is pretty low. It's only about sixty five thousand dollars to a hundred thousand um, dollars. Well, I say low, but that's not great, is it? For for considering that it's how you know how full on the yeah. job is, and mm. the fact that he's the first in fifty years is actually incredible, isn't it? Don't you think that's really... That is incredible. It's surprising. It's actually surprising. But, I mean, I think if you're going to... If you want to be an astronaut, I mean, blimey, is there any more a tenacious uh, conquest, Matt? Yeah. I, I Exactly. They're, they're, a driven, they're a driven bunch, aren't they? Yeah, I know. If, if you think of all the training he's gone through, like in the pool... Oh, God. And just, in the Matt, when we were talking jets. about the books that we've read where, you know, they go to Russia, <laughs> learn Russian, and then learn rocket science in Russia... Yeah. Yeah, you, it's completely mental. It's so so much to do, and there's Mike Massimino squashing his eyes and training his eyes for hours on end every day just to get through. Uh, yeah, I mean it's incredible. Yeah. So yeah, he's uh, he's departed from the 2017 class, the Turtles, which leaves him with only 11 members. Um, but he's got he's got quite a, a, a an exciting background. He used to be a commercial fisherman in Alaska. He used to be an oh, no, ice driller in Antarctica. <laughs> no way. Yeah. And then he worked as a senior manager for flight reliability at SpaceX. God, what a mix. Yeah, where he's worked since 2011. So there's a little bit of a uh, thing that maybe, maybe he's leaving because he wants to get the job as the pilot of the BFR. I reckon that's why. Yeah, can you imagine? Definitely. So, do you know who the only uh, the person fifty years ago was? Oh, I don't know. Tell me. He sounds very Welsh. This guy, but I'm sure he's not. He must have been American. John Llewellyn. Oh, Llewellyn. Llewellyn. Very Welsh. Oh. Uh, oh. And he was a member of the sixth group of trainees uh, and the second scientist, ast- the second scientist astronaut group in 1967. And he just said, cool. "I don't. I'm just not cut out for flying jets. That's the reason why he Fair quit." Play to him, yeah. So one one other big thing in the old uh, in news today, uh, Jamie, is the well, I I I think I know what you're going to say. Are you going to say about uh, the hole in the space station? <laughs> There's a hole that, that in has the space to be covered station. with with gaffer tape. With a bit of gaffer tape. <laughs> <laughs> Here there can, is. Please, can English people stop calling it duct tape? Yeah, it's gaffer tape. If you're American, that's fine. It's gaffer tape, please. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Jamie, I've just put on some duct tape. Hey, buddy, you got any duct tape? <laughs> no, no, old Bean, but I Sorry do have all some Americans. gaffer tape. <laughs> Sorry to all English people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, yeah. No. We're getting like Family Guy, Matt, where we're just offending everyone. everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, there's a small leak. On the International Space Station, I don't mean another reference to the Welsh. It's no. No, it, it's it's yeah, it's it's a little tiny tiny leak. So Rogozin, the old Russian boss of the space space program in in Russia, he told mm. the Russian news agency that there was a micro fracture caused by a micrometeoroid impact, and it's coming from the Soyuz MS09 spacecraft. Which took uh, oh. Alexander Guest etc. up in uh, in space June. Space junk. So yeah, who knows? It might have been a bit of space junk. It might have been, you know, just something from outer space. Might have been even been a tiny interstellar traveller. Who knows? But yeah, it's gone and punctured a tiny, tiny, tiny hole, um, two millimeters in diameter. In the wait a minute, Matt. Yeah, wait a minute. Let's think about this for a second. If it was a tiny interstellar traveller mm-hmm. and it went into the space station mm-hmm. and they've covered up the hole, mm-hmm. it could potentially come back to Earth when the space station is retired and that's panspermia all over again. I mean, Matt, do you realise what this could mean? It could 
It could mean all sorts. This of could things. be the second evolution. Oh yeah! Oh my god! I'm going to write a song. <laughs> can can we finish the podcast before you go and do your song? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> so yeah, it was fixed. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't gaffer tape or duct tape. It was fixed with Captain tape, which I, I love. This so Captain is Ooh. yeah. It's a Dupont developed Captain. It's like a polymide film that um, is used all over the place in space because it's got this ridiculous stability across all these vast temperature ranges. So printed circuit boards are often on Captain. But yeah, Captain tape is what they've used to fix the leak and then they're going to do a more comprehensive long-term repair, according to NASA officials. Um, Well, that's good to know. Yeah, so there's there's an onboard repair kit. Uh, uh, so don't panic, people. So don't panic. So uh, no one was hurt. Yeah, it was all okay. Did you know that James Webb Telescope um, Sun Shield is made from Captain tape? Yeah, get out of town. Yeah. Bit of gaffer tape. Stolen it there all you together. Go. I'll sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've got. Of course, it, it's that time of the month, Jamie. Oh, please tell me we've got a David Baker interview. We've got a DBI David Baker oh. interview. Now, there is a bit... I look forward to these. There is a bit in this interview where Dave and I get a bit carried away about how ACESA is and how much better we are than NASA. Well, everyone knows that. (laughs) So I thought thought we'd play a little game before, and the answers will be after the the interview. We haven't played a game in eight. What's the game called? The game is called ESA versus NASA game. Why is Terry and June the uh, theme music for the Lisa versus don't NASA know. game? It's quite good. It's kind of like sounded like a sort of uh, you mm. know yeah yeah, yeah, quiz, yeah quiz game music. Okay, so here we go. Let's do it. Question one: Which space agency spends the most money? That's not. It's not a tough one, is it? Well, answers after the interview. Question two. Which has the most active satellites? Wow. Is that ESA or NASA? ESA or NASA. Which of the space agencies has the most astronauts currently in space? Question three. Question four. Which has the most launch vehicles? Is it ESA or NASA? I tell you what, that's, that's going to be as contentious as hell. Definitely going to get some yeah. emails on that one. Oh, uh, yeah, bring it on. Which of the space agencies has the most interplanetary missions and probes, including rovers? <sighs> Current, they're active. They all have to be active, okay? So, let's go Got to... It. Shall we go to David Baker interview? Let's do it. A good day. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Matt. I'm just absolutely fine, thank you. And... Uh... Managing to survive the heat and uh, now the more autumnal feel to the weather. Yeah, it's it's changed quite a bit since the last time I spoke to you, even though it doesn't seem that long ago that I did speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> Although, actually, saying that, I'm in Cornwall and it's actually quite it's quite hot. Ah, oh, I envy you. L- lovely county. <laughs> or should I say country? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, David, what have, what have we got this week? Or this month, I should say. Uh, well, well, the the current issue of Spaceflight magazine has majored very significantly on NASA at 60 because, of course, this year we're celebrating the birthday of the origin of NASA. Um, but I've, I've looked in this issue, there's about 25 pages there, which is looking at the current situation with NASA. Because, in a way, I'm, I'm trying to shift the center of gravity away from from always focusing on the history of NASA, because it seems that we're in great danger of living on the legacy reputation of NASA as an iconic, um, almost marketing brand uh, Mm -hmm. globally. I mean, who who hasn't heard of NASA? Everybody instantly knows. But they think of moon missions in Apollo. They think of shuttle and, and then come to a grinding halt. So what I'm trying to do is with my mantra of all that you've seen is merely a prelude of what is to come, I think it's nice to throw it forward and to look exactly at what at what the challenges for NASA are. We've looked in this issue of spaceflight at uh, the Space Launch System and its competitive position 
with the whole arrangement of the commercial vehicles. And we have looked also at the at just exactly what NASA does cost. And, and I think, actually, we did uh, touch on a few of these things in, in the last podcast. But, um, but it, it, indeed, it is looking back at the 60th anniversary. And I was minded, um, and I think uh, you and I, Matt, discussed the fact that uh, this, this year is a whole year of remembering that transformation of the old National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which had been formed in 1915, mm. into the new National Aeronautics and Space Administration uh, in 1958 in direct response to Sputnik. So, so don't you feel it's, it's perhaps of interest to see how yeah. NASA has changed in those decades? I'll tell you one thing that, that you, you mentioned, that the NASA branding. I'll give you two examples of how NASA branding is so much better than everyone else's. Right. Um, this morning on the news, we had uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission mentioned because it's nearing its target. And you think, and you never, but Hayabusa 2 is actually at the target and doing stuff, and that hasn't been on the news. And you think, it's, it's, it's really bizarre. They're very similar missions, and one is of no interest, and one is of lots of interest at a, a sort of, even at a national news level. And yeah. uh, I, visit, I visited ESOC uh, earlier this week, yeah. and it's one of those trips that, had it been at NASA, and, yeah. uh, and that, that kind of look around at NASA, there would have been hundreds, if not thousands of people doing it, and there was j- just a handful of us, which was great. But we're called Earth Groupies. Uh, but it was, it, but it was, it was quite, it was quite obvious. It's just that whole, uh, yeah, that the, the kind of branding of NASA is is supreme. But you're right; it all harks back to moon missions and and the yeah. kind of iconic stuff and Apollo yeah. thirteen, even and and things yeah. like that. Yes, and if NASA has done no more than lay the foundation for its metamorphosis by delivering to the commercial and the broader world a set of possibilities that would never have existed had NASA not been formed. So how do you think NASA are transforming? Because the way I see it is um, they're spending an awful lot of money on hardware to get into space and is that really the direction they should be going or should they be concentrating on, on the science and, and, and facilitating it? Well, I'm, I'm sure you're right, and I think that um, I, I think I discussed this last month on your podcast, Matt. That um, there's far too much on the supply side and not enough on the demand side. And space mm. station is a classic example of that. The billions have been thrown at this incredible engineering achievement, but actually the engineering is an enabler, or should be, for the product that will come through the science and the research and development that goes on. And yet the push behind the the, the research and the scientific experimentation has always been pushing this great rock uphill in trying to find government money um, when Congress is saying, oh, surely it's the private sector. We've provided this we've built it why won't they come and i think that is the problem the fact that there's so much government-led front-end hardware been thrown at this that there's not enough um when all the supply side expenditure has been spent there's not enough left over for the demand and the productivity end and i think that that is the problem but in the very transformation of nasa itself if you back that off and look at what nasa has enabled and given the opportunity to provide i mean the subsidy for the commercial companies was the key enabler to get these commercial organizations off the ground literally Mm. And, and 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 if it hadn't have been for subsidy, where, um, depending on how you do the math on all of this, between a third and a half of all the money that has gone into developing the commercial side, it's come from the taxpayer. It, this, this, these are not... It, I, I get really quite frustrated when it's acclaimed in the media generally, not in, not in the specialist media who know about these things, but in the general media, um, referred to as, as these billionaire playboys throwing their money at space, and sometimes in, in a very negative way, as though, oh, this is not real economy stuff, this is not really driving business, um, it's just billionaires playing around with useless toys, and it's not the case at all. Uh, the billionaires have the money there, the Elon Musks, the Jeff Bezos, people like that, but um, Paul Allen. 
But mm. you've got to have a base upon which these guys, who are pretty grounded economically, I mean, they, they might have a very, uh, all the way from, from weird and wacky to debonair attitudes to the way they present themselves. But fundamentally, they're interested in making money. And, and underpinning all of their passion is that. And they're not about to lose their shirt on ridiculous things that are not going to provide a return. And, and Elon Musk is the arch example of that. Forget the Tesla side of his operation. That's a whole different <laughs> yeah. thing. We all know, you know, that's up for question. But on the space side, he has been controlled, cool, ice cool in the way he has maneuvered his money and the investments in SpaceX into a highly revenue-rich product with, with dozens and dozens and dozens of launches backing up way into the future, creating a Falcon Heavy that nobody said would work, and even Elon Musk said was likely to fall apart even before it got off the pad. We all remember his, his fear that... The, his greatest fear about this was it wouldn't get far enough away before it blew up so as not to damage the pad. Um, <laughs> and and, and here, here it was, a roaring success. Um, and that is a result of a market that really has been created by NASA. But there's a lot in the mix here, isn't there? And you were raising this business about the fact that, that um, it's the go-to, everybody knows it, um, acronym NASA uh, picked up by the media but in actual fact um, in many ways the European Space Agency is actually outperforming NASA in quite a number of sectors that don't get attribution simply because ESA is not as big a buzz phrase at all mm. even with not even close uh, compared <laughs> to NASA you know which, yeah. which even if you can't speak English, you say NASA and people's eyes light up. And we've all experienced that in various places around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, yeah, I mean, the European thing, it was great walking around ESOC and seeing all those fantastic missions that are happening, particularly, I mean, things like Gaia. <laughs> it's yeah. like, what? why is that? You know, it, it, it should be really big news, shouldn't it, that we've yeah. got these... Um, you know, uh, partially built in Britain, mm. or a lot of these, mm. a lot of these satellites, and mm. and and the amount of uh, English people that were working at ESOC was incredible. All these great engineers mm. and scientists, it was mm. it was fab fab mm. to see. But you hear nothing, but you mm. don't hear much about it. And and mm. and I really like the direction that ESA have gone in, particularly with the Earth observer Earth mm. observation yes. element of it, because we're now yes. presumably Europe is the world leader in that area. Oh, yes, and, and indeed the UK has played a very significant part and majored in that from, from a couple of decades ago, didn't it? That, that uh, Earth observation and Earth science was to be the very core of uh, focus um, in initially a very mediocre and lackluster UK government support for space, which now in the last five years has changed dramatically for the good, certainly. But it's very interesting reflecting back that... ESA is the only national space agency that had an architecture that was defined by the requirements of the member countries because every other space agency in the world has been politically instituted in order to create a competitor base with another foreign country's challenge. NASA began purely as a political tool to make America big compared to what the Russians were achieving in the late 1950s. Its mandate was that. And it was very mediocre, the predecessor organization, the NACA, formed in 1915. And, and for those aeronautically minded who are listening, the, the NACA was very much the equivalent of the Royal Aircraft Establishment of Farnborough, uh, which was the very core of British formal research and development in aircraft engineering, and the principles of flight and flying scientifically. Um, the NACA came along after um, the uh, Royal Aircraft Establishment had been formed and uh, became essentially an advisory body doing a tremendous amount of research, which really made its, its stunning reputation in the 1920s and 1930s for its wind tunnels and its research facilities and the aerofoil sections that the NACA 
um, identified were picked up and taken off the shelf, as it were. Each aerofoil shape, each each sectional shape of a wing platform uh, was applicable to a particular type of aircraft requirement, be it a commercial aircraft for long range, a light aircraft, a military aircraft, a bomber, or a fighter. Um, that that was the very core. And, and so it was the organization that in 1958 inherited all these space projects from everybody else in the United States in order to homologate together all of the capabilities that were disparate and dispersed among competing elements in the military, among scientific operations such as the Vanguard rocket program, which although it was majored by the uh, Naval Research Laboratory, was essentially a pseudo um, non-military operation. Even the very first man in space program for NASA, the Mercury program, was inherited from the Air Force that wanted a capsule that could precede the dinosaur boost glide intercept um, strike system and reconnaissance system. Um, and that was imported into the new <clears throat> NASA, um, where the NACA had been doing some work on the development of shapes for the capsule. But it was just supposed to be a precursor to winged boost glider military vehicles. The Army had Huntsville with uh, Von Braun, so that Development Operations Division of the Army Ballistic Missile Agency was imported in NASA, and the Army and Air Force planetary programs, uh, which had been supported by JPL, were inducted, and that's where JPL became the big lead in planetary research. So NASA didn't, didn't originate anything. It simply built on what the rest of the development community among the military and the civilian operations in America bequeathed to NASA. And yet here you've got the European Space Agency in the mid-1970s being formed by direct mandate of need and requirement in science and research. And the engineering was made to serve the science, whereas in NASA, science has been made to serve, or rather engineering has been there as the prime development motivator. And NASA is very good at making things but has been very difficult and very hard at sustaining a continuity without tearing everything up and starting again. We've seen that multiple times with both the manned, the planetary, and the permanent occupation, actually facilities in space. NASA can't make this work. The space station is not working for what it was designed to be. It is a fantastic opportunity but it's not working in the way it was expected to be. And so in looking back at what NASA is in its relationship to the other space agencies, ESA is the only one that stands out as having been functionally derived from need rather than political posturing. Yeah, that's, that, that is really interesting. I mean, the, the space station, if that has been in some ways... A failure because they've not been able to, um, well, make it work on a commercial level. Uh, when that, when all of that starts to be, uh, well, hopefully not deorbited, but if it is deorbited, and then we're left with the the LOP G, the the lunar platform. Uh, what, uh, what's your what's your feelings on? Because that presumably is going to be so much more expensive to run, and so much more dangerous, and yeah. and so many more elements to yeah. it that. Well, but yeah. is 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 this really a project that they should be undertaking? Is the is is the lunar gateway a, uh, a as good a project as it seems on paper, or is it really going to be a bit of a white elephant for NASA? Well, being brutal about this, I think I think there is quite a substantive balance of um, evidence to say that once again, um, it is the product of a rocket looking for a job, which is the space launch system. And it was thrown at NASA as a requirement when Obama walked away from big government ticket space, human spaceflight projects and Council Constellation in 2010. And you've essentially got, this is the latest, isn't it, in a whole mm. series of proposals on what to use the space launch system for. But 
the problem with space station was that it was never built as a scientific research facility. Nobody knew what space could deliver back in the 1970s and early 1980s when um, the initial idea of the space station was launched. The space station was launched because Reagan wanted a tool to exceed the accomplishments of the then Soviet Union. And so space station freedom in the early 1980s, John Hodge, a British-born Canadian who came down to work on the Mercury program and the Gemini and did a lot of mission planning in the Apollo program and then headed up the space task group to find out what NASA should do big time next in parallel with the with the initial indoctrination of the shuttle in, into operational missions. And so the space station, which had always been looming there in the background of NASA's um, tick box list of things it, it, it would desire to have, and again, following on the Von Braun um, hmm. paradigm initially, NASA got elbowed out from having a space station initially by the Kennedys, uh, by Kennedy, who who deflected NASA by immediately seizing the moon opportunity. And, and that destabilized NASA, from which it has never come back from. The NASA between 1958 and 1961 had a very strong, consolidated, um, work-it-as-you-go um, methodology. And, and it was very clear to see, suddenly in comes Kennedy, and, and everything's changed. Everything's different. This guy who wasn't interested in space at all, who looked within a matter of weeks of coming into power at the budget he was inheriting, fiddled around a bit with space, added a little bit more for the Saturn launch vehicle funding, and did nothing else. And then all of a sudden, we get the Bay of Pigs fiasco toppling him politically in the world, in the eyes of the uncommitted nations, to which he was appealing for allegiance. And we get Gagarin. And so he turns in fury, Lyndon Johnson and says, find me something to do to beat the Russians. And so we got Apollo. In the Reagan years, during the big military build-up, Reagan wanted to put in an inertia. And, and I remember this very well. It was the big, in Washington at the time where I was very, very involved at this period, in the very early 1980s, up in Washington after I'd left Houston, there was this great feeling that Reagan was itching for big, big power pressure, much as Kennedy had sought Apollo as a means of countering a ballooning Russian runaway. And we saw the massive runaway after years of apathy in the defense world through the Carter administration in the Ford years. Suddenly Reagan comes back with massive inflation of the defense budget in order to counter what was the last hurrah of the Soviet Union, as we knew in its last decade. We never could have predicted it to be that close. But the Russians were pushing and surging heavily, and we knew they were working on a potential shuttle equivalent. Um, and uh, and when I went to Zvezny Gorodok in 1982 and, and was shown around by Leonov and Shatalov and, 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 and not over to a building, and Leonov said to me in 1982, that's where our shuttle will be, meaning the simulator. And and these things were, were, were not exactly locked up in the secret files of the CIA. They were being talked about on the streets, in the space centers in Washington and, and in Moscow. So Reagan wanted another spectacular, oh, I'll have a space station. That has been talking about that. It knows how to build one. But there was never a functional purpose as to what the thing was going to do. It was just an equivalent to Mia as it emerged. And, and that was the problem. And so here we go again. We don't know what we're going to do in space. We can't find any real reason for it. Do we want to go to Mars? Do we want to go to the moon surface? All very good and aspirational in and of themselves. But there's no methodological procedure. And this scattergun approach just persists in America. And this is the real core problem. And this is why the European Space Agency, with a fraction of the budget, is outperforming in many sectors. And not a lot of people like to hear that, except those within ESA itself, because <laughs> they're not getting the credit they deserve. No, absolutely not. I did, the way that you've uh, portrayed that whole story there just feels like it, NASA's been very reactionary to w global politics and and their change of leadership uh, continually. So <laughs> they've probably hugely underperformed because it's not been long-term 
there's no been no real long term vision about what they were going to do, and it must have been very very frustrating for the von Brauns and and yeah. people like that at NASA who clearly did have long term yeah. visions well, with what you, they wanted to do. You know, Matt, there was three years. There was fifty fifty eight, essentially fifty eight, because from the spring of fifty eight we knew that NASA was going to be formed. So there was 58, 59, and 60 when NASA had, an, and I've got all of the all of the 10-year projection documents for that very, very, very early period, and there was a sequential developmental flow. Eisenhower would not have NASA run amok with the public purse in the way that Kennedy offered it to NASA, doubling of the budget every single year for five years, taking it from a few hundred million to five billion in five years and nothing like this had happened in peacetime before and the moment the political machine seized nasa and used it to the advantage of the political profile of usa incorporated then that was when it all went south and that was really when nasa has never been able to liberate itself since from being a tool of the political machine, fought out with much acrimony between the White House and Congress, who very often differ, but each of them have torn apart NASA's own long-term planning. You don't have that in ESA. You have it from the user community up, and then the Council of Ministers consider those. But ESA is not a contrivance to, to thrash around the world um, demonstrating the extraordinary potential and capabilities of a cohesive European um, group of countries. It is about the serious business of applying science, technology, and engineering for human benefit in space. And that is the big difference. And NASA will never get back to what it aspired to be and was in those first three years until it is liberated from political control. Mo- moving on from NASA, because oh, uh, <laughs> we, we, we've got limited time this week. What else have you got going on well, at the moment, David? Well, I'm, I'm very excited about what's happening in Rome um, in, in the middle of October, Matt. It's, it's the Maker Fair Rome, the European edition of the International Maker Fair, which are a series of events which are held in different countries in order to celebrate and bring together creative, talented people making things all the way from art and craft right the way across into robotics, electronics, and into innovative ways of using technology at the macro and the micro level. And Don Isles, who was the guy who designed the Apollo guidance computer at MIT and worked um, to produce essentially the mechanisms by which Apollo crews in their spacecraft could navigate to the moon and back in the event that all communications were lost and provided the technical base upon which the whole design of Apollo's guidance and navigation was built. He and I are going to be present at the Maker Fair, which is open in Rome between October 12 and 14. There will be Thousands of people there from all over the world. They are huge meeting places. They're quite wild and wacky. They're not particularly formal. But Don and I are going to push forward on a huge 500-square-meter um, area, which is purely dedicated to space. And the British Interplanetary Society is there right at the forefront. And I should mention the pioneering work of Fabrizio Bernardini, who, uh, who heads up BIS Italia, our Italia branch, and so we will be there uh, October 12 to 14, raising a flag for space and for all the innovative and creative capabilities that that provides for ordinary individual people, not big firms and government organizations who want to get in on space and have creative and innovative ideas for applications as well as for ways to use space um, for the benefit of human beings all across the planet. So it's a tremendous fun time. Couldn't be a better venue. Rome is extraordinary. And in October, it's going to be lovely. The climate's going to be really, really nice. Don't quote me. (laughs) 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 But but yes, go to Make a Fair, October 12 to 14. And we're going to be giving talks and everything. And I think I'm staying on 
to actually do some talks at Rome University. So, so it's big space time. And don't always think NASA, think Europe. Yeah, that's really cool. So with, with makers, how long do you think it will be until people at Maker Fairs can build their own CubeSats? I think it's only a matter of time and bring it on because I think it's long overdue. Thank you very much for joining me again, David. Uh, that's been really interesting. Always, always a pleasure, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Enjoy Cornwall. Bye. Cheers. There we go. There's the David Baker chat. He continues to be my favourite space legend, yeah. Matt. I tell you what, I, I'm really fancy going to the Italian Maker Fair. Let's go. Can we get pasta as well? Oh, yes. Of course, we the food pasta, will be... Matt. I love oh. all it. I have to say, Italian food is pretty goddamn good. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's pretty yeah, good. It's pretty good. So do you want to hear the answers? Let's do it. Spodcats, here come the answers. Which space agency spends the most money? Of course, it's NASA. You yes. spend $21 billion a year. It's a lot. Yeah. ESA spends about $6 billion, Just under $6 billion, right? Um, but... I I spent a load of time adding up the populations of the two 22 member states. Turns out ESA has 503 million people, right, from the member states, yeah. uh, compared to 326 million people in, in uh, the United States. So um, 503 million people. So ESA spends $12 a head and NASA spends $64 a head. There you go. That's fine, Matt. We just need to get ESA's credit card limit upped. Yeah. So if we spent the same, out. if we spent the same, if ESA spent the same amount per head as NASA do, good grief, it would be ridiculous. It'd be a lot of money. It'd be a lot of money. So which has the most active satellites, ESA or NASA? Matt. Yeah. Go. It's NASA. It's NASA with 42 or thereabouts compared to ESA's 13 or thereabouts. We're creeping up. We're, we're creeping, we're up. creeping up. So, Matt, what about astronauts currently in space? Astronauts currently in space. NASA has... Well, I'm oh, going to dig down into these active satellite ones first because okay. I think there's some... Inter- because 42 and 13, in terms of the money spent... It's slightly ESA have slightly better value, so we, for the money spent, we've got slightly more satellites than NASA have in 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 um, active in orbit on orbit. So yeah, four science ones compared to seventeen that NASA has. Five weather observation compared to twelve that NASA has. We've got one gamma ray telescope, and yeah. NASA's got two. We've got one X ray uh-huh. telescope. NASA's got three. One visible telescope. Uh, NASA has three. They also have a UV telescope. But we had the gravitational wave telescope, sort of, uh, even though it was a you know, tester. They've got two infrared and two particle detectors on top. Uh, but, of course, we, we share we share the Hubble telescope. It's an ESA-NASA thing, that. So that's I love that nice. we share it. Good. And, of course, the same with... Um, uh, James Webb Space Telescope is we get it on we get it on Mondays and Thursdays. Yeah, Canada gets it yeah. on Tuesdays, and yeah. the United States get it on all the other days. So astronauts yeah. currently in space. What's the numbers, Jamie? Oh, I'm going to hazard a guess, Matt, mm-hmm. that it's three. Well, it's three NASA astronauts, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then it's just the is it the one? It's just ESA? the one ESA. Of course. Old. Do I get a prize? You do. You do. You do get a prize. It's old okay. Alexander Gerst. He's up there. Um, right, yeah, so so 3-1. However, we we, we spend yeah, a, a lot less money, you know. So in actual fact, yeah. again, we got slightly better value for money there. Uh, launch vehicles. Now, this one's funny. What do you, <laughs> what do you think? What's, what's the numbers? What? Surely it's NASA. No. What? I make it that NASA doesn't have a launch vehicle at the moment. And and I make it that Europe, the European Space Agency has two. I think you can count, you can definitely count Vega and Ariane. Yeah. And Ariane 5, I think you can count as well. Yeah. So there's two ESA launch vehicles. They're controlled by ESA. And they are, you know, ESA's launch vehicles. Whereas NASA, 
yeah, they 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 don't have a launch vehicle at the moment. Well, there you go. Not that I don't even Who'd know. If that, I don't even Who'd know. If that's a, I don't even know if it's a good or a bad thing. I think. Please, uh, please let us know if Matt's got that wrong. Yeah, because you know well, we well, love a correction. I think that's super contentious. That that particular statistic. Uh, and we'll then, find out. Now this is the one that this is one <laughs> where I think NASA shows some absolute. This is where they kick ass. To be fair, <laughs> interplanetary mm. missions and probes. So NASA. I've got two en route. ESA have got none en route. NASA have got two at the moon. ESA have got none. NASA have got three at Mars. ESA have got two. NASA have got two uh, Mars rovers actively working. ESA have got none. Damn. If only Beagle 2 was working, we we could have had one. Asteroid mission. NASA, of course, have got one. ESA have got none ever since Rosetta... Of course, it's quite annoying because a lot of the ESA ones have just finished. Around uh, the sun, NASA have got one. Outer solar system, this is when NASA are really kicking. Oh, yeah. Four. They've got ass. four out in the outer solar system. Four. Juno, the Voyagers. Oh, man. So, um, yeah, so in terms of interplanetary missions, I make it NASA 15, ESA 2. Oof. So, yeah, NASA getting definitely good value for money there. Well done, NASA. Well done, So I think I on, a, on a head-to-head, NASA is still slightly ahead of ESA. Um, but then ESA actually do have... Mem- the, the countries like Italy, France, Germany do have their own satellites up as well. So the member states have got, like, stuff up. Um, well, Matt. Yeah. Wait till the UK are up and running. Oh, yes. Yeah? And then the then U- we're going to be like, they're going to be against the ropes. Let me tell you. Big time. Jamie, I've been doing, because I've been on holiday, I've been doing lots and yeah. lots of brilliant interviews. What have you been doing? So, uh, coming up is uh, John Krause, who's, of course, awesome. the... the the photographic legend that is John Crouse, yes. whose photos are on the front covers of magazines. and Wow, that would be close and, to your heart, Matt, as a keen astrophotographer. Exactly. So it, it was really interesting, really interesting little chat that awesome. with him. And I did that. We did that on the, uh, on the Patreon um, Discord channel, which was fun. Never done ah. what they've never done. It was, I'll tell you what, the sound quality was better than Skype. And that shout out to our patrons. Yeah, and people could join in. So that was really that was really good. So people were asking awesome. questions. Some of his patrons were on the channel as well. So that was that was really that was really cool. Um huge. Uh I've got an interview with uh Kate from the Planetary Society in London because she's off to spend a few weeks locked up in Lunaris, which is another Ooh. moon analogue. Yeah. Yeah. So she's in Lunaris. Uh, so I'm, we're in, I've got an interview before, and we're going to interview her after. And oh, so that's going to be ace. That's ace, isn't it? And today, I um, interviewed. Um, and annoyingly, you were there, but you couldn't hear because <laughs> of technical hear. Damn technology again, Matt. It's got us. Yeah. Would was Bernard uh, Shemul? He is the Inspector General of Kness at the moment. The the uh, French. Uh, space agency um but he's been the boss of the guiana space center he's been the head of projects the directorate of space transportation etc so this guy it's really really brilliant chat with him because he's done so many things and more i also did an interview with Miles Carden, who's the space Miles Carden, who's the spaceport director of Spaceport Cornwall, a man. I, I literally can't wait for that one. No, it's brilliant. I have to say, I'm really excited about UK launch. It's just really, 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 really cool. So there's some brilliant interviews coming up, and of course, we've got the hundredth episode of the podcast coming up live at Arthur C. Clarke House in Vauxhall uh, with special guests. Music. It's going to be music there. 
and of course your demonstration with a bowling ball and a skateboard. Will there also be snacks? There'll be snacks, there'll be nibbles, glasses of wine. <sighs> What's the difference between a nibble and a snack? Nibble, I think, are things like uh, those Marmite things, what are they called? Uh, and snacks are like uh, mini Cornish pasties. Got it. Okay, yeah. noted. Noted. We'll have both. Yeah. So really exciting, guys. Please check that out um, on the day, which is 28th of September. If you're in London, get yourself down. It's going to be a ball. I can't wait. That's it. That's it. Done. Dusted. Done and dusted. I can't, just, just get yourself down. If you can't make it down, then you can watch it live on YouTube because we'll be streaming it. Yes, you can. This is, this is big time, Matt. Jamie. Well, that's it. You've been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace back. Back. Into space. Into space. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God damn. I'm so hungover, everyone. Right. Have a great day. Spotcat. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) 